Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and after spending three sessions on forgiveness and reconciliation, we're now ready to tackle the next event in succession here. At some point, while Jesus was in Galilee discussing everything that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 18, there was an incident that took place between Jesus and his brothers that's not recorded by Matthew, but it is recorded by John. And this is in John chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After this Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Talking about the religious leaders, not the race, but the religious leaders. They were seeking to kill him. Verse 2 says that the feast of the Jews was at hand, the feast of tabernacles. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. Disciples as in other than the main twelve. Jesus had a huge following. His brothers knew this, but he's been specifically hanging around these twelve, and it's in Galilee. The whole Jewish world is going to Judea for the Feast of Tabernacles, and here Jesus is in Galilee. So basically they're saying, what are you doing here when all the action is in Judea? Why don't you go to Judea? For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, they say in verse 4. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Nothing like the support of your family, huh? Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. Did you catch that little insult that was in there, folks? Jesus is basically saying, You guys are not a threat to the forces of darkness. You can go anywhere you want. I teach that their works are evil, therefore the world hates me, but the world cannot hate you. Verse 8, You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. He's pointing out everything has been prophetically arranged. Everything is perfectly timed. And then verse 9, Having said these things to them, he stayed behind in Galilee. But afterward, verse 10, When his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up also, not openly, but as it were, in secret. And we find out in Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, going back to Matthew's report, it says, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. The feast was in Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now from where he is, he has to go through a Samaritan village. So verse 52 says, He sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set as though he would go to Jerusalem. See, there was a big thing going on between the Samaritans and the Jews. Racial grievances, political grievances, religious grievances. So Jesus is going through this Samaritan village. They're ticked off that he's not really coming to see them. He's just passing through. So verse 53 says, They did not receive him because his face was set as though he would go to Jerusalem. So verse 54 says, When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Good grief. Hey, Lord, what do you say we wipe them out? Verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So they went to another village. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but he's not there yet. 
So meanwhile, going back to John chapter 7, starting in verse 11, therefore the Jews kept looking for him at the feast and asking, where can he be? Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. However, nobody spoke openly about him for fear of the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Everybody had a sense of what was going on and what was about to happen. Everybody's interested in this guy, Jesus. They want to see him there. Some think that he's a good teacher, but nothing more. Others think he's leading folks astray. He's a false teacher. Some of them think that he is a prophet like Elijah. Some of them think he is possessed. Some people think he's crazy. But one thing they all have in common, they're afraid to talk about him openly. They know the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. So surely there's this undercurrent of feeling about what Jesus may or may not be doing. Is he hiding? Is he escaping? What's going on? So the feast got started without Jesus. He wasn't there, but we know he's on his way. The feast itself lasted eight days long. People are looking for him. Verse 14 says, Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So this is right in the middle of Jerusalem, folks. And he goes to the religious headquarters, the temple itself. And verse 14 says he began to teach. Well, don't you know the religious leaders just loved that? And whatever he was teaching must have been quite impressive because verse 15 says the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They don't know that he's never studied. Where do they get off saying that? They're trying to figure out where he got his education. He didn't get the endorsement from the Sadducees or the Pharisees. He didn't go through the local teaching academy. He's never received any scholastic endorsement from anyone. But Jesus' attitude is, well, my father twice has come out of the Shekinah glory and announced to the world, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You listen to him. So that's pretty much all the endorsement Jesus needs. But apparently that's not enough for some people. He's not Dr. Jesus, Ph.D., he's just Jesus. And they're trying to figure out, where did he get all of this? How does he know everything? So Jesus responded in verse 16. Jesus answered and said, My teaching is not my own, but it's his who sent me. That's the difference between a good Bible teacher and a bad Bible teacher. A good Bible teacher will teach you the Bible. A bad Bible teacher will teach you something else. It's real simple. How do you know he's a good teacher or a bad teacher? You need to be in the Bible to make sure that what you're hearing coincides with what you've been reading, so that what you're hearing is not his message, but comes from that book. And Jesus is saying, look, this is not my teaching. The doctrine that I'm teaching came from him who sent me. It's his teaching, not mine. Now look at this next verse. Look what Jesus says here. He says, if any man will to do his will... He shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, if any man desires, if they really want to do what God wants, then that person will have the illumination needed to recognize and tell whether what they're hearing is from God or not. Because God knows your heart. He knows your heart. And if you really want to know what the truth is because you want to abide by that truth, God's going to make sure that you get it. Well, Josh, that's good if we start from a blank slate, but what if I'm being deceived? What if I'm hearing lies? What if somebody's trying to deceive me? Once again, if you really want to know what the truth is, 
God's got to do something in your heart that lets you know that what you're hearing is not the truth. That's what Jesus is saying here. If any man wants to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God or not. I remember a long time ago there was a group of false teachers who were trying to hammer into me some false teaching. And I could not biblically prove them wrong. I couldn't do it. But I knew it in my heart. There was something about it that wasn't right. I couldn't tell what it was. But because I couldn't prove them wrong biblically, I couldn't discredit what they were saying because I didn't have the biblical proof to back up what I was feeling. But where did I go to get the truth? I went to the scriptures. I said, God, what I'm hearing doesn't make sense to me. A lot of people believe it. A lot of people are teaching it. But it doesn't make sense to me. I don't see the truth in it. What does your word say about this? And you know, God will honor that. God knows the heart. If you really want the truth and not what you want the truth to be, then God will give it to you. And sometimes that's a problem too. Sometimes we have these preconceived notions of what we want the truth to be. And then we intellectually build protective walls around that viewpoint, making certain that it's never challenged. Now, some Christians think that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm going to protect my viewpoint from Satan destroying it. Well, what if it's the Holy Spirit who's challenged your viewpoint? What if it's God who's trying to correct an erroneous view that you've had? Well, that's different, Josh, but what if it's the devil? Whenever Satan or this world tries to challenge truth, the best thing to do is take it straight to God. Say, God, I heard this. What do you say? And he'll direct you to all the evidence you need that'll take you to the truth, whether it's through scripture or whatever. Don't ever be afraid to ask God the tough questions. And more than likely, when God gives you the truth, Satan will continue to challenge what God told you. So what do you do? Do you just build a protective wall around what God told you and just refuse all challenges and just put your hands over your ears and go, bah, 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 I'm not listening? No. You do what you did before. You take it straight back to God and say, Lord, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm feeling. What's the truth? And folks, I know from personal experience, it's okay to ask God the same question over and over again if that's what it takes to get you the truth. If Satan's going to challenge the truth a hundred times, then you ask God the same question a hundred times, if that's what it takes. Because nothing will root you deeper in truth than asking God the same question. God, did you really mean this? And every single time, he gives you the exact same answer. If you get a different answer every time you ask him the same question, then you got to wonder who you're listening to. But what Jesus here is saying, if any man desires to do God's will, his pleasure, in other words, what I want is not interfering with my listening. You know, sometimes there'll be a decision and we want to take a right and then we ask God, God, what do you want me to do? And man, we really got our heart set towards turning right. And we want it so bad that we allow Satan to interfere with our listening. Satan loves to pretend like he's God when we're trying to get advice, especially when we already have a preconceived notion of what we want the truth to be. You've got to wipe the slate clean from all of that. Say, God, not what I want. Look, this is what I want, God, but I want what you want more because I know you want what's best. What you want is going to be better for me. What you want in the long run is really going to be what I want. So that's what Jesus is saying. If any man really desires to do God's will, he will know 
whether the teaching is from God or whether it's from somewhere else. Verse 18, Jesus said, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, that one is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keep the law. So why do you go about to kill me? The crowd answered him, said, You have a demon. Who goes about to kill you? Jesus said, I did one work among you and you all marvel. The one work he's speaking of there, folks, is recorded in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. It was the healing of the lame man that took place on a Sabbath day. That's why everybody's so upset about it. He worked on the Sabbath. Let's back up to verse 19. Jesus told them, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet not one of you keeps the law? Now, folks, that's a statement that Jesus made concerning all of us. None of us, absolutely none of us, Romans chapter 1 tells us, none of us have kept the law. So that includes me, you, and everybody, including the people he was talking to, including the very people who were seeking to kill him for breaking the Sabbath. He healed a lame man on the Sabbath day, the last time he was there, and they're seeking to kill him. So Jesus in verse 19 says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet not one of you keeps the law? So why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Now, folks, I love that verse there because it just goes to show you how people love to pretend to be ignorant. A few verses up, we were told that they were afraid to speak openly about Jesus because they knew the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. So they know exactly who's seeking to kill him. But openly, they say, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them and said, I have done one work, and you all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but of the fathers. And you circumcise a man even on the Sabbath day. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man completely whole on the Sabbath day? Okay, let me stop right there so I can explain some things here. Circumcision is to be done on the eighth day after birth. And despite what we hear from modern critics, it wasn't just a religious thing. It was and is still done today for health reasons. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But it is necessary for health reasons and hygiene reasons, which is why God ordained it, starting with Abraham and then legalized it in the Torah when Moses came along. Now, at the time, nobody understood why. Because the medical explanations weren't known then, only God knew about it. But because of that being something that was unique to the people of God, it was recognized as a mark that set apart the Jews from the rest of the pagan world. And for the most part, it's still recognized as a practice of evolved hygiene. It's come under attack in recent decades because God endorsed it and the world hates what God endorses. Jesus just told us that not too long ago. The world has lately tried to label circumcision as a barbaric practice, but so is child sacrifice. And these same critics of circumcision don't have a problem with abortion clinics, so we know where that so-called higher criticism is coming from. But what if that doesn't describe you? What if you're just a good Christian parent and you're about to have kids, and you're asking questions like, is this really necessary? Is this a barbaric practice that should be let go of? It's ancient. It's out of date. Or is it possible that it's something that we should do? 
Well, the New Testament makes it very clear you don't have to be circumcised to be saved spiritually. A soul isn't saved or lost depending upon whether or not you're circumcised. Paul made that very clear in his letter to the Galatians. But as far as health, as far as hygiene is concerned, you have Jesus right here in John chapter 7 verse 21 endorsing it as a healthy act saving the body. He compared it to healing the lame man. It's healthy. And the main reason why Jesus is bringing circumcision up is because circumcision was to be done eight days after the baby was born, and it didn't matter whether or not the eighth day fell on a Sabbath. If the eighth day of a baby's life fell on the Sabbath day, they circumcised him anyway. Why? Why did God tell them to circumcise the males specifically on their eighth day? God didn't bother explaining it to them, but it turns out, thanks to modern medical science, we now know that a baby's blood doesn't have enough vitamin K in it to allow the blood to clot until they're eight days old. So if you circumcise them before eight days, they might bleed to death. So you might ask, well, if the eighth day falls on a Sabbath, then why not just obey the Sabbath and wait till the ninth day? Why can't you put it off a day? It turns out that we also now know that as a newborn's immune system is building up resistance, just before it develops to full capacity on the ninth day, it goes into overdrive on the eighth day. So their immune system is at its peak on the eighth day. If you circumcise them after the eighth day, the risk of infection is higher. If you circumcise them before the eighth day, they might bleed to death. Now, you'll never convince me that Abraham or Moses knew anything about vitamin K in the bloodstream or the best day the immune system was at work, but God did know. And the eighth day was the best day to do it. It was so critical to do it on the eighth day that even if the eighth day fell on a Sabbath, you were to circumcise the baby. So what Jesus is saying to his critics here in John chapter 7, if it's okay with God to circumcise a baby that's eight days old, even on the Sabbath, because this is a matter of health and hygiene, then why do you have a problem with me healing a lame man and making him completely whole on the Sabbath day? Verse 23, Jesus says, If to avoid breaking the law of Moses, a person undergoes circumcision on the Sabbath day, have you any cause to be angry with me for making a man's whole body well on the Sabbath? Verse 24, Don't judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. In other words, if you're going to be judgmental, at least be right about what you're judging. And then verse 25, it says, Some of them in Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill. Look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? I love the shift in attitude in the crowd here. It's as if they know there's something wrong with their religious leadership. Could it be that they're seeking to kill him because he is the very Christ? Verse 27, others say, no, we know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. <laughs> where, is, where is that in Scripture? I wonder how many moments in a day God laughs at our boldness in proclaiming biblical truths that are not biblical truths. You know, one time when talking about the identity of the coming Antichrist, whenever he shows up, I wound up getting into a discussion with a group of people. This was many years ago. 
and uh, it was just a casual, lighthearted conversation about the race that the Antichrist would be. And by the way, folks, if you ever get into some discussions with folks about end-time prophecy, about stuff like this, you should always be open-minded and open-hearted. In other words, open-minded meaning being able to listen to new points of view so long as you stay inside Scripture. Open-hearted meaning try to be understanding of those in the discussion who know less Scripture than you do. But with that aside, I remember once when discussing the identity of the Antichrist, I don't know what started this conversation, but some were saying in order for him to deceive people into thinking he's the Messiah, he would have to be racially a Jew. He would have to be a Jewish Antichrist. Others in the group were saying that since the New World religion would be both religious and political, with wealth and power, many have postulated the theory that he would be Italian tying him specifically to the Roman Catholic Church, and they had some scripture to back up that point of view. Another theory about the race of the Antichrist was bantered about when bringing up what had been said by many former Muslims who had converted to Christianity. After comparing their former beliefs with their new beliefs, they couldn't help but notice a parallel between the prophecies in their Quran with the prophecies of the Bible in which the roles of good and evil were switched around. They believe that the race of the Antichrist will be Arab. And all of this was being talked about in this little area where I was involved in this discussion. One view was that he was Jewish. One view was that he would be Roman. The other view was that he would be Arab. And as all of this was being discussed, I couldn't help but stick my neck out there and make a complete fool of myself with my theory and said, you know, Genesis 3.15 tells us point blank what his race will be. He's called the seed of the serpent, so he'll be reptilian. Of course, I was half kidding. It went way over their heads, and not, not one of them had any idea what I meant by that. But then out of this discussion, somebody just blurted out, No, no, no. He shall be of a yellow nation. And this person said that with a posture and a tone in their voice as though they were quoting scripture. He shall be of a yellow nation. Folks, that's nowhere in the Bible, not that I'm aware of. Of course, none of us really knew what we were talking about in that discussion. I was amazed at her certainty, though. I mean, she just, she knew it. And she was more wrong than any of us. Verse 27, we know where this man comes from, but when the Christ comes, no one is to know what place he comes. Apparently, one of the prevalent views of that day was that he would just pop up into thin air with no history, no background whatsoever, that was one of the views at the time. But the scripture didn't say that. He's supposed to be of the line of David. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. He's supposed to be from Nazareth. All of that's in there. We know where this man is from. We're not supposed to know where he's from. Jesus calls them out. Verse 28, Jesus says, You know me, and you know where I'm from? I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Well, because of that statement, verse 30, it says, They sought to take him by force, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. When I read that, I like to sarcastically ask people, How did they know that his hour had not yet come? Well, wait, it's not them. They're not able to take him by force yet because God decided that his hour had not yet come. 
verse 31, many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ comes, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? In other words, if you were going to prove somebody was the Messiah, what could they possibly do that Jesus himself hadn't done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people were murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests then sent officers to take him. But then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. Jesus is telling them when he's going to be arrested. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to be with him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Folks, that statement is true both literally and spiritually. The unbelievers that Jesus was addressing would never go to where Jesus eventually went. After his resurrection, they knew his tomb was empty, and they searched the world over searching for his body and never found it. And to where Jesus really was in heaven, they never went there. Verse 35, Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So they pondered over it, never really coming to any conclusion. But I can't help but notice the polar opposite between what Jesus just said to them, the unbelievers, and what he will later promise to us in coming chapters, where he says, Where I am going, you know the way. I am going to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. Completely opposite of what he just told these unbelieving Pharisees and religious leaders, these officers. Verse 37, In the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. This last day, folks, was the eighth day of the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration in remembrance of the time when Israel camped out in temporary tents waiting to go into the Promised Land. For the feast, they would go back and forth from the Pool of Siloam to a silver basin by the altar of burnt offering for each of the first seven days of the feast. On the eighth day, they didn't get any water. And what that symbolized, I don't want to get into that now, just to point out the timing of Jesus' statement here. This is the climax of the feast after seven days of gathering water, but on this day there is no gathering of water. So then Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Folks, this is so simple and yet so profound and so straightforward. Come to me, he said. Who's doing the talking here? Jesus is. Come to Jesus. Not to a church, not to a preacher, not a pastor, not a deacon, not an elder, not a bishop, not a cardinal, not a father, not a pope, not Mary, not the queen of heaven, not Muhammad, not Allah, not a psychic, not a spirit guide, not an alien from another world, or any of their representatives. Jesus said, come to me. And you can do that right now or wherever you want. He's right there waiting. You don't have to be clean. You don't have to clean up yourself. You don't have to straighten things out in your life. He's the one that does all of that, not you. You don't make any offerings to him. He's the one making himself an offering to you. 
It's like no other religion. People want to call Christianity a religion. It really isn't. Every belief system on the planet is about us cleaning ourselves up to make ourselves presentable before God. This is Jesus, God himself in human flesh, making himself an offering to you and me. Come to me and drink. Verse 38, He who believes in me, whoever, as the scripture has said, whoever believes in me, who cleaves to me, who trusts in me, who relies on me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. This is the same thing he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Living water will spring out and nourish others. You aren't the only one who benefits from being saved. Others you know will benefit. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. These verses here also destroy that absurd myth that I've recently heard from some groups that tried to suggest that it's possible to be saved without the infusion of the Holy Spirit. For decades, false teachers have taught that if you were saved, then you must have the ability to speak in tongues. And if you can't speak in tongues, then you must not be saved. And that false teaching went on for decades. And then finally, some of these false teachers started to tone it down a little bit and say, well... If you're really saved but can't speak in tongues, then it must be because you haven't invited the Holy Spirit into you yet. You're saved, and you've got the Spirit of Jesus in you, but you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They try to push the idea that a person can be saved by Jesus, be baptized by His shed blood, but somehow miss out on the infusion of the Holy Spirit. You've got to specifically ask Him. Folks, that's nowhere in Scripture. The only time in history that that ever happened was between the time Jesus spoke and then sent his Holy Spirit recorded in Acts chapter 2. If you got saved before Acts chapter 2, you're the exception to the rule. And this verse right here explains it. Look at this verse 39. Well, let's back up to verse 38. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, or his belly, shall flow rivers of living water. Living water meaning the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing it meant when he talked to the woman at the well. Verse 39, it says, But, this is in parentheses, Jesus said this of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is John the Gospel writer putting a little note in here, explaining that, Universally, when a person is saved, they're immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus said what he said. All those who drink of the water that I shall give them, what is the water he's going to give them? The Holy Spirit. All those who drink of the water that I shall give them, it shall be a well of living water that springs out from their heart continually. We find out later in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, because he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus gives us two titles of the Holy Spirit here. He's our comforter, and he's the Spirit of truth. Verse 39, Jesus was speaking here of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were afterward to receive, for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40, 
Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, they said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. See, they're, they're getting better, but they're not there yet. This is the prophet. What does that mean? The prophet was the same identity that was sought after when they asked John the Baptist, Are you Elijah? He said, No. Well, are you that prophet? Meaning, are you literally Elijah or are you spiritual Elijah? And another target of that prophetic title, the prophet, some believe to have been the one spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, they think it's Moses. That's a whole other view. I don't want to get into that here. The point is, they haven't got it yet. Verse 40, of a truth, this is the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Trace that down, folks. It's Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. That's the seed of David. Psalm 132, verse 11. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. All of that makes it very clear that Jesus would be of the seed of David. He would be born in Bethlehem according to Micah 5, verse 2. So they got their scripture right in that case, but they're letting the fact that he's been hanging out in Galilee with the apostles get in the way. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. That's a very nice way of saying everybody split up into different groups with their own views and opinions. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one dared laid hands on him. Verse 45, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? They came back empty-handed. The chief priests and Pharisees were upset and said, What have you done this for? Why have you not brought him? Verse 46, The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them and said, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the rulers believed on him or the Pharisees believed on him? That's just like today, folks. You know, what do the religious leaders say about something? Because we all know that determines what the truth is, right? Wrong, but not according to these Pharisees. Why have you come back empty-handed? Where's this Jesus? Why didn't you arrest him? Because no man has ever spoke like this man. <laughs> have you also been deceived? Have any of us rulers or Pharisees believed on him? No. Verse 49, as for this people... And if you get into the original Greek, it's a derogatory word. It's rabble, this multitude, this crowd of stupid poor people. As for this rabble, this multitude, who know not the law, they are accursed. So the Pharisees are telling the officers, you guys have been led astray, and you're just as stupid as all those sorry SOBs out there who don't know anything. None of us elevated religious leaders have been deceived, but all you stupid fools out there have bought into his deception. Well, guess who happens to be there, folks? And he's had enough. Remember the man that Jesus spoke to in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, the one who was told John 3.16. Nicodemus said unto them, does our law judge a man before first giving him a hearing and knowing what he does? Then they replied to him, Are you from Galilee too? You search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And each of them went back to their own house.
but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's how John chapter 8, verse 1 starts. And we're going to conclude this study at this point because what's about to happen, folks, is so controversial that many Bible scholars believe that these following verses do not belong in the Bible. Some translations have even dared to omit these verses. But we're going to go over them in our next session, and I'm going to try to make the case to you. It is of my opinion that these verses are legit. They do belong. This event did happen, and I'm going to try to make my case as to why. I'll go ahead and give all the arguments on both sides of the aisle. Just stay tuned for next time. And we're going to get it out to you faster than we've been getting them. So hang in there. Stay tuned. Until then, we're out of here.